0: A healthy lifestyle depends on quality sleep, and Sleep Number is here to help you sleep more efficiently. Sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health. Here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible. Reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late-night alcohol. Get regular exercise during the day, which helps you feel tired in the evening. And keep track of your sleep health with data from your Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate Sleep Number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast1. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast1 for details.
1: Good morning!
2: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel. We're your host, and I'm so happy to be with us for this episode. My guest is Rob Mahoney of The Ringer, and we have a great conversation, of course, starting with the NBA Finals, takeaways from the first two games, what we could expect to see in Game 3 and moving forward. But then we go in a lot of other interesting directions, off-season to come, uncertainty, and I think our discussion about the Nets at the very end of it is absolutely fascinating. Conversation runs well over an hour. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Anytime, Danny. We are recording this between Games 2 and 3 of the NBA Finals. The Suns are currently up 2-0. But at the same point, I, I, I'll also, I'll, usually I like to open things up at the beginning, but instead I'm going to see if you accept or reject my my interpretation of the first two games, which okay. is I thought game two simultaneously made the Suns more likely to win the series because they're up 2-0 and winning, being up 2-0 makes it harder for the other team to win, but also made it more likely that it's a long series because I thought the Bucks looked – significantly better especially Giannis in game two do you kind of agree with both both tenets of that I do I mean between Giannis's
3: health and also just the the structure of the Bucks defense and what they were able to get done there some of the adjustments they made which I mean were subtle like more more subtle modifications than they were complete overhauls but I thought they were pretty effective and just what they got out of Brooke Lopez on that end what Drew Holiday was able to do defensively there's enough to work with here between all of that and a closer to full-speed Giannis that can get you deeper into a series. But as you said, I mean, being down 2-0, that's, it, it's not quite a death knell, but it, it's never a great sign percentage-wise for any team to, to come back and win.
2: Well, and, and we'll start with kind of the negative on the Bucks just because then we could get positive, which is 2-0 when— both of the games were on the road is significantly more tolerable unless you're the Clippers because for whatever reason that just doesn't matter. Um, right. But it generally kind of the idea when, when 2-0 is less scary is when you have a clear talent advantage and in that sort of a circumstance it's like okay you you still do have to make up one of those road games and you have to take care of business and you know potentially face a game 7 on the road but if you have a talent advantage you can you can weather that storm like there are various series over the years especially if you think of like a 4-5, or in certain cases, a 3-6 where the other team had an injured guy. But part of why I'm concerned for the Bucs, and I, I kind of have two different theories of where this series is going to go, and so I'll talk about the kind of negative one for the Bucks first, which is they absolutely, like, I mean, they can win games in the series. They could have won game two. And Giannis will continue, hopefully, to get healthier, and... The Bucks are pretty healthy overall. Other than that, and they they corrected some things, and you know, also you could say if Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton were marginally better in Game Two, they could have pretty easily won the game with how well they played during certain stretches. The challenge is they don't have that talent advantage. I, I th- I'd say overall, you know, it, it, it's closer now that Giannis looks better, but it's not like oh, the you know they've just been waiting for this and now they're going to run roughshod over the Suns. The Suns are a damn good team, but the other part of it is I have this sneaking suspicion. That what's going to happen in the two games in Milwaukee, I'm not saying which order, is that one game the Bucks win, not comfortably, but, you know, like they do they do well in and it's not, you know, maybe it's not in danger in the last five minutes. And then the other one, it's on the margin and whether it's that the Bucks shooting isn't great or they, you know, have a couple of late foibles or hackagannas or something else. And so the Suns win one game in this series, probably in the next two, that they quote unquote shouldn't win. And then the yeah. series is over. I
3: mean that's the trouble you run and that's why the percentages when you're down 0.2 or down 0.3 are as overwhelming as they are is they just completely wipe out your margin to have those kinds of sloppy games and then course correct afterwards. I'm. I I could definitely see that happening, especially with the way the Bucks shoot and just you know the nature of the players they put on the floor. This is not a team full of dead eye shooters, and so the idea that they could have an off shooting night, and by they I mean mostly I guess Chris Middleton and Pat Connaughton and Bryn Forbes and Drew. Yeah, and Drew. And at the same time, you know the Suns could could catch fire, especially if they're able to set up their corner guys like they were in Game Two. That's a totally plausible course of events. But I'm I'm with you too that Game Two was in the buck's grasp. And I, I don't. it's probably not fashionable to say, but I think game one was in their grasp, too. I mean, that was a single-digit game in the fourth quarter that was theirs for the taking if they could just go on a little bit of a run with that small ball lineup. They just, between, you know, Giannis looked a little bit slower laterally in game one. They just didn't quite have their offense together altogether, even though Middleton was much better in that game. it, You know, they just needed a little bit more of a push in one of those two games to really get themselves on good footing. And now it's just, it's backs against the wall all the time, Every game has to be a great game. You never want to put yourself in that position. But, you know, at the very least, you're in the NBA Finals. You expected this to be a difficult competitive series. You knew you were going against players as skilled and as crafty and as decisive as Chris Paul and Devin Booker. So you kind of knew that this is what you were bargaining for. It's on some level. You just, I'm sure if you're Milwaukee, never wanted to see yourself down in this kind of hole this quickly.
2: Right. And I'm glad you brought up the shooting because I think there is overwrought concern many times about the way that the NBA has shifted and, oh, there's too much three-point shooting and all these other things. But one part of it that does resonate with me a little bit is the idea that it shifts your variance. And so the way I would phrase this for Milwaukee right now is that they're going to have to win at least one game in this series because they have to win 4 out of 5. They have they're going to have to win at least one game in the series when they're not shooting well. Yeah. And presumably that game will be the Suns shooting better than them, but you could maybe maybe you end up and, and that means that doesn't mean you have to shoot like it, shoot well in every other game or anything like that, but it, it, and that can be a real challenge. And I thought that the Bucks offense looked better in game 2, a big part of that was Giannis being able especially in that that crazy third quarter when he dropped when he dropped 20 points. It was the first 20 plus point quarter in the finals since MJ in in incidentally also against the suns and that gave milwaukee an identity that gave them something to go to and while Giannis is not the greatest free throw shooter in the world he was looked a little bit more comfortable then and he you know and and also it it didn't get anybody into foul trouble that like changed the game, but it you know, the sense of think about it also slowed things down. So I think that the the that gave the Bucks a little bit more because they're playing both teams are playing their starters ridiculous minutes, but the Bucks I would say need more from those guys, so that makes it kinda harder for them. They're high the 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 high leverage that all of Middleton, Giannis, and Drew Holiday have to do. I think that's part of why they've trailed off in some of these fourths. But that general idea of, okay, you're going to have to survive a game or two in all likelihood. I mean, you're going to have to do that. It's daunting and it's daunting for almost any team. Now, what makes me feel better about Milwaukee surviving that is that their defense did look better to me in game two than it did in game one.
3: And that's where, to to go back to your premise on their need to kind of win an ugly game at some point, that's where the promise comes from, is the idea if they can be that kind of team defensively and... I do realize how ridiculous it sounds you know, after a game where they gave up 118 points to, to be lauding their defense, but it, you can really tell that it's almost there. You know, first game, uh, they really tried to guard the pick and roll with two guys as much as they could, whether it was switching or dropping. Try to contain that with two guys and limit you know all the role players, all the kick-out passing as much as they could. That didn't really work. We saw in game two what happens when you switch to a different strategy and you're chasing a little bit over the top and you're making Phoenix move the ball. Phoenix just Coincidentally, one of the best teams in the league at doing exactly that, making those swing passes, connecting dots uh, from, you know, playmaker to facilitator to corner shooter. They're so good at that stuff. They're so deadly. But I thought Milwaukee did a really good job of containing the initial action. Their problem in game two, to me, seemed to be just they were still overcompensating a little bit they were still over helping uh over drew and, and brook lopez in particular and not letting those guys play out those possessions and staying a little bit truer to those corner shooters and those role players and i think if they kind of walk the line between their game one approach and their game two approach there's a pretty decent formula there to if not win every game to at least put the Jay crowders of the world in some pretty difficult positions where they have to make plays where they have to make complicated reads where they have to you know thread the needle in traffic or drive through a couple of different guys, that's where you want to be if you're the Bucks. And so the fact that the best defense in the playoffs so far in Milwaukee is inching closer to having a defensive hold of this series, not, you know, not a strangle hold, but at least a feel for what they need to be doing and how they can be playing. That's kind of their formula going forward, especially as you mentioned with everything that Drew and Giannis and Chris Middleton have to do offensively. I honestly get the feeling that that's kind of why they approached game one the way they did with as much, as much switching as they had and his little kind of furious scrambling rotation as we saw in game two, I think they were just trying to save those guys' legs as much as they possibly could for offense. They realized that couldn't quite work and so they switched to a different strategy, but you have to be very careful, especially, you know, Giannis was so dominant in game two, but you don't want to have to push him in that way all the time to create so much offense for you against the grain of the defense. I mean, he was, those were hard fought points, even if they were fouls.
2: Right, and I, I'm really happy you brought up The the workload, the strain on those players, and it's an important consideration. And I would argue – I don't know that Mike Budenholzer is listening to this, but I would argue that there was actually similar small corrections that they could have made on their game one strategy instead of going hard a different direction. Now, the other direction had some fruit as well, but so like the the point that I would make there is on Perk Lopez. And so Lopez was very impactful around the rim in game two, and I thought he was actually close to quote-unquote right on the switches – The problem was he was about a step or a half step too far away from the – from their perimeter guys when they were shooting. And in one circumstance, he then got too close after he was already in the air. But that – you can't do that. That's a foul and everything else. And – the reason you, especially against Chris Paul, that you do that is you're, th- that way you're affecting the shot more, you're affecting his sight lines, and you're sometimes, more often than not in many ways, challenging him to instead drive. And that, I'm not saying it's gonna work every time, but I think it'll work better than, than what they did in game one. And, what I like about potentially tweaking the switching approach, even with Lopez on the floor, there are two things that work well there. One is it's a change of pace, and I, I hate giving Chris Paul the same look very, very frequently because he knows ways to attack it and can, can get into some of that. But the other part is – There's a theory of the lineup with switching that actually works when Lopez and Giannis are on the floor because they have something that almost no team that switches does, which is two capable rim protectors. And that's a part of why the Suns restricted area stats were so bad in game two in particular is that by going to their traditional approach the bucks have a lot of guys around the rim and so the you know they're forcing even on second chance points a lot of times they're forcing challenging shots and in a lot of systems i i bring up miami and bam with this all the time because it's not the thing that bam is best at is when you pull the other team's shot blocker out and they're not really great at coming back incidentally a guy who's bad at this is deandre ayton is that then there isn't anybody else who can do that. And so you can pull that guy out early and then attack with a version of reckless abandon, and it works relatively well. You can't actually do that against the Bucks when they switch one through five, especially if it's a late switch situation. That's the only reason Lopez does it, because presumably the other guy is going to be around. And I thought that tying in the two games, like one of the adjustments that the Bucks can think about and conceptually is something I harp on all the time with big men is trust your size. So if you're Drew Holiday and, or Middleton or Connaughton is notorious for this, sometimes you don't need to pinch in aggressively from the corners because you have these incredible defenders that have it. And I think so in both circumstances, that's like the biggest thing that I would tell the Bucks defensively is trust your size when your size is out there.
3: I think that's huge for them. And some of it, I think, is guys like Connaughton, and I think P.J. Tucker in particular, trying to validate, in some sense, their contributions on the floor. Like, Connaughton is going to hit shots, but if you're a guy like P.J., where defense is your calling card, and in this series, you know, like, we saw him guarding Devin Booker a little bit more in Game 2, which I think is a nice adjustment just to give, like, maximize his value within, you know, within the minutes that he gets as much as possible, but when he's matched up against a Bridges or a Crowder in the corner, he wants to find a way to contribute. He wants to to find a way to to pinch in, to help. And especially after the way things went in Game 1, I'm sure it was a point of emphasis for them to give... Lopez as much help as they could, you know, to, to give him cover in case he gets up too high. But as we've been talking about, he did a pretty good job. And to me, the the one stat that sings the Bucks' praises as much as any is that Chris Paul had six turnovers in that game. Yeah. More than, more than he's had in any playoff game so far. I think his high previously was four in one of the games against the Clippers. And you could see it not just with him getting bottled up a little bit when he tried to go all the way to the basket and exploit some of the size that was meeting him up higher or trying to find the lapses or the little gap in between drew and lopez or whatever it may be but you could also see guys just picking him off on the perimeter jumping the passing lanes knowing the reads he wanted to make i mean this just looked like a bucks defense that was more dialed in to what phoenix wanted to do than it was in game one and that's that's a huge step forward for them
2: well and there is a direct parallel to i think that was game two of the Clippers sun series where game one, it's this is so often the case, especially against a really talented team. It takes time to figure out what the other team wants to do and like what their what their MO is. And so in game two of the Clippers series, L.A. started jumping the passing lanes more. They kind of understood where the ball movement was. And these are incredibly talented players and coaches that just need to kind of see it in action and be like, okay, when he's doing this drive, he's going to pass it at the corner. Here's the rhythm of their offense, where they're going to go. And so you start to get better at anticipating that. And so to their credit, the Suns were able to adjust and they they got other things. But I think we saw a little bit of that. I think there's actually a little bit more that can come. Clippers did it kind of all in one shot. I think the Bucks did about three quarters of it in one shot and that happens like that that is how a series works and the suns benefit and i don't mean this is like it was unjust or anything like that from it being so long since the bucks have played an opponent that functions anything similar to them offensively you know like the hawks just don't have this level of horses the nets are a very differently structured team and really only had one star for the entire series so the nets weren't even the nets the Bucs took Miami out of it, but Miami was never in it because like the Bucs took them out of it so quickly. So it's been a month and a half, two months since that. since Milwaukee played a team that was really, you know, pinging the ball around and everything else. And so it makes sense that there was this adjustment, this learning curve to playing Phoenix. And that's happened before. I talked about it in the Clipper series. They were up, they were, the Suns were up 2-0. They won the series in six games. If they do that again, they're NBA champions. And. I, I, what I, one of the things that's really encouraging about the Suns, and I, I think this was most prominent in the Denver series, even though that was the least competitive of their series, is that they have counters, they have wrinkles, and you yeah. can't take everything away that Phoenix wants to do. The Lakers came the closest before AD got hurt, and I mean, I think the Lakers would have won that series without it, but Phoenix's offense is really hard to stifle. You can do it in moments, and you can do it in that, but you can't, you can't take everything away for two or three games and at this point milwaukee has to win four out of five so if the suns can put it together for a couple games they're good
3: and that's why they're such a difficult opponent to face down oh two as you just laid out just how slippery phoenix's offense is and that was that was to me why it was the response to the way the bucks defended in game one and their strategy there to me was a little silly this idea that oh mike budenholzer you idiot why would you dare try to switch this action and give chris paul these contested mid-range jumpers over brooke lopez like why would Would you ever do that? there's no good answer for the Suns and we saw that in game two like you tilt too far the other way and all of a sudden Mikael Bridges is the one burning you and he can absolutely do that you know those guys are cast as three and D players but they are they are well beyond stand in the corner spot up guys like they have the ability to put the ball on the floor to make some passes to adjust to drive to find the, you know the right read in that situation and yeah you might want them doing that more than Chris Paul one of the smartest players to literally ever play in the NBA it, it probably makes sense to. Put with the ball in their hands instead of his but it's not a great answer either and especially if they like with the quality of the open looks that Phoenix was able to get from the perimeter even with Milwaukee i thought scrambling at a championship level, like they were playing finals level scramble defense. I mean, just oh, look at that, that, one. that one
2: play. Oh, I my know, God. It's,
3: it's heartbreaking. And like there's there's probably kind of a personality test in this one Phoenix possession where they, you know, I, I'm sure anyone who watched the game knows what we're talking about, where there there must have been eight passes in that possession swinging all around the floor, just rotation after rotation after rotation. And whether your instinct after that play is to go, oh, my God, what beautiful ball movement or, oh, my God, I feel heartbroken for the Bucks." There's there's something in that for sure, but I really thought, I mean, Milwaukee's defense on that play was about as good as it could possibly be, and it ended in an and-one layup for Deandre Ayton. That's how difficult the Suns are to guard.
2: Yeah, and there aren't perfect solutions, especially if you do, nobody really has perfect personnel. Incidentally, as I brought up, the Lakers are probably the closest, but that happens. And I I think that Phoenix also they have they don't have perfect personnel for the Bucks defensively when the Suns are on defense but they have enough different options that they can make life hard they can go to some different approaches and that's also why one of the key dynamics to watch that it affected game 2 but it didn't swing it as much as i think it will in game 3 is the combined absences of Dario Sharic and Tori Craig. Absolutely. And, and so Sharic was pivotal for the Suns this year even though Deandre Ayton to his immense credit can can play a lot of minutes. Like Ayton has a can can handle that. He generally isn't too bad at fouling. He can make things work. And he, you know, he, he has enough juice to play, you know, we could talk in the 40 minute range, but Sharks brings a different element. He has this great chemistry with Chris Paul and he can theoretically work as a power forward when you need it. get can add some, add some juice to the front court rotation, but Sharks being out with the torn ACL is devastating for the Suns also for next year. I mean, they're going to have to figure something out there. Not the time to talk about that either, other than wishing him well. So. James Jones has done an unbelievable job with with the Suns, but I've had a couple of misgivings, and one of them is not using any resources to get what I would consider a competent backup center. And you're not gonna have somebody who can shoulder the load if DeAndre Ayton goes down. Like just like any other important player on a good team, you're just kind of screwed if that happens, unless you're so loaded that you can handle it because you have, you know, two other stars or something else. But they don't have really anyone outside of Sharich that I consider a viable center, and that's why as soon as Kaminsky came in the game in game one I said they're going to end up with Crowder at center because Kaminsky can't hack it and the great thing for the Suns is that even though you know Jalen Smith and at one point Damian Jones and then they cut him which was the appropriate decision and then everything else they had enough they're like the one of the only teams in the entire league that has enough forwards that you can actually do that with with guys that are you know with with guys that are in your rotation but that i think it didn't require tory craig but it tory craig made it work a lot better he's a stable defender he did a pretty good job in various different matchups And now the good news for Craig is that it looks like he's more day to day. It's a it's a knee bruise rather than ligament damage or anything else. But it's probably going to take him a little bit to feel right. So do they is Monty Williams comfortable saying this is our base approach for the ten minutes that he doesn't play? I don't know.
3: Yeah, no structural damage too doesn't mean we necessarily see him in this series again. Like there's still there's still a wide range of injury that could keep him out of at least games. Uh, going forward, which is really tough for them, because as point. you mentioned, he's he's so valuable to those smaller looks. In part, because not only as you as you noted, he, he's a really solid one-on-one defender, really good team defender, but just when you're looking to play smaller, what you really need is that level of hustle. You need that guy that can like he he's not big in you know in, on his own, but with the way he hustles, with the way he rebounds, with the way he gets after it, he can help you win some of those fifty-fifty balls that small-ball teams lose. And sometimes you see the Bucks on the other side of this where I'm, you know, I'm I'm as big a Chris Middleton booster as you'll find in the NBA media. But he is not – whenever they try to play him as a four, they suffer for that a little bit because he's not like a hustle for the rebound kind of guy on every possession in the way that a Tory Craig might be. And so you just get a different taste of something when you can put – you know, if it's him and Crowder and Bridges on the floor all together and that's kind of your three, four, five. I think they probably would feel okay trying to fake it against most teams where they might suffer for it in this matchup is just in the deficit of size. You know, Milwaukee is not the kind of opponent you necessarily – thought you'd be running small ball against to, to that kind of deficit in height. You know, I could see, to your point about how the Suns navigated the regular season and the fact that they never really got a, a center alternative, between the success of their bench in the regular season and also the matchups they were probably looking at out west, they probably felt pretty comfortable with the idea of, of playing smaller and playing Saric at center and, and rolling with that, knowing that, okay, if we're going to come up against you know some Marc Gasol minutes. We feel comfortable guarding him with a smaller guy. Or you know you look you look across the Western Conference. There might be a really big starting center, but not a lot of those teams stay big when they go to their bench. And so I, I wonder if they were kind of looking at those matchups and feeling okay about how Saric would match up with them, and thinking they maybe didn't need to get. Or at least you know, give up assets or make a big swing for for a third string guy or a real backup center in any kind of respect, and trusting Sarge in that regard. But this is when that could really cost you. You know, in, in Game Two, Deandre Ayton already played 42 minutes. I don't know that there's that much more upward stretch in terms of his minutes there. And so what you're really talking about is, you know, Crowder had 37, Bridges had 38. You're probably asking even more of those guys who, if they're put in the positions where they have to create offensively, like they were in Game Two you're really starting to add up in terms of their overall workload for guys that you know they cut they move off the ball they're very active in games but it's a different thing when you're engaged consistently on both sides of of the ball at that level and playing in small ball lineups where you have to hustle and do more and you're being stretched in terms of of your minutes to that kind of extreme
2: right and another way of thinking about this is Phoenix still has enough forward depth that they can play three guys if Tory Craig is unavailable, that they can play it three guys and make it viable. The challenge is that's probably Bridges, Johnson, and Crowder, two of whom are starters. And so if your argument is you need to play these guys in those 10 minutes, then that's 10 minutes they can't play with the other best players on your team. And you get into those sorts of challenges, and most coaches do not build their rotation around making sure your starters are out there in the right non-starter minutes. Now, I I would argue that some teams should do that more aggressively. It was a big criticism of mine of Budenholzer in the Nets series. I thought that they didn't kind of shift things around based on how... Brooklyn had to do things. And then Brooklyn also kind of bridged some of those gaps by just not sitting their guys, which is an interesting and challenging way to do it. But I I think that it's difficult. And at certain points, the goal is just to survive, you know, to survive some of those minutes and to do it enough that you can that you can make it work. I also, I, it's been interesting in this series, I, I brought up Ayton's defense a little bit before, and you, you brought up, which I think is a great point about the, where the West was, and, you know, you think about the teams that were out there, and this series has been a different kind of challenge for Aiden because it's not the five out kind of the, the, what the Clippers brought at moments in the series partially out of necessity. Instead, there are times where Aiden, like where the easy matchup for him is also not something you need, you need to handle that differently. Like if you're guarding a small as a big, you're thinking in a specific way. You're like, okay, be here, do this, do that. When you're guarding a big that can space the floor, You kind of end up in actually a more challenging place because you kind of want to be out there. You want to keep an eye on it. But what one of the things that I thought Aiton did poorly in both games one and two that can be corrected, and we'll see if the Suns actually want to. Because some of this – I'm saying Aiton isn't doing this, but it could just be a coach telling him don't do this. Like we don't know that for sure. It's hard to know. Is – I use the term threat assessment, which is basically, if you're not protecting the basket, no one is protecting the basket. And yes, at times, Brooke Lopez or Giannis are going to get an open shot, and they can hit those, you know, especially Lopez with reasonable frequency. But it's the same thing as the math problem that the Bucks are doing, which is you think that the marginal effect of deterring shots at the rim, maybe committing fewer fouls and everything else is worth some of those clean looks going in. And I thought that Aiden, whether it was coaching, whether it was his own decision making, he was too tethered to his own man and insufficiently focused on protecting everything else.
3: It's such a delicate line to walk, especially for a guy with his level of experience in his first NBA finals, even with as much as we've raved about DeAndre Aiden throughout these playoffs, like that's where it gets tough is not, can you manage this one? one on one matchup can you find ways to exploit smaller defenders as a big who 's you know trying to maintain your size, still trying to score inside it 's exactly what you talked about the the fluid reading of is this a moment where I should abandon basically the principles of our base defense, where where what needs to be done in this moment is more important than the integrity of the idea we talked about in, in shoot-around or in the walkthrough? That's where it's tough. And that's where you know guys like Chris Paul are on top of that. They know those moments better than anybody. And Aiden is inching toward that level, but as we saw in game two, still has a long way to go in terms of knowing how to contribute to the team defense while also maintaining the integrity of his assignment. It's... It's really, really hard, and it's probably the thing that gets glossed over the most when we're grading players on their defense and we're talking about who's a good defender and who's not, is who knows, not just like when to gamble, I, I think it's more complex than that, but when really to to sell out of what you're doing as a team to make the play that needs to be made, and he, he still has some work to do in that way, and he still has some work to do in the one-on-one stuff too, as, you know, Giannis was just at a different level of physicality than him in Game 2 in some of those drives. You could just see the way Giannis was bumping through him, bumping off of him. There was just a, a pretty clear discrepancy there. So we'll, we'll see how Aiden responds. I mean, that's that's been one of the most exciting things about his game in these playoffs is even on the occasions where he isn't so great or he's more of a background player, he's come back with some pretty huge performances. So I'm, I'm eager to see what he makes of the rest of these finals.
2: Yeah, I am too. And criticizing Aiden for this does not mean he will be bad at this forever or that he is a bad defender or anything like that. It is appreciating what he does well and what he still needs to work on. And DeAndre Aiden is 22. He has made more strides defensively Than I would have expected in his first couple of years in the league. I'm thrilled about that. And We'll see where it goes from here, but I, I think that having this series is it's 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 good. I would argue, depending on a player's mentality, I think it's good to have some bad film going into an off season because then that can be motivation. Not every player works the same way, but you're like, okay, this is something I can work on. This is, and he'll get he'll get some reps during the regular season, but really, we're not going to get to see too much of this until the 22 playoffs.
3: And well, we'll see how much the bad film matters if he's also a champion. You know, those two things might offset right. in a way that you know.
2: Uh, and, and, it, 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 it's a, and it's a short off season, like so. Yes, I and Absolutely, I'm sure that there will be people, probably not the two of us, that lose that thread at different moments between now and April of next year, because we're going to be on a normal calendar, but we will not have gotten to that normal calendar in a normal fashion. That's a great point. And so it, I I hope and I pray that it's not going to that's not going to have some of the same beats that this that this year, especially these playoffs, have had, but. We're having games in normal arenas. It's not like you're not overwhelmed every second by the world is upside down. So we're, you know, we we understand that everything needs these grains of salt in this context. And next year is going to need a whole lot of context, too. And maybe for some people, having Jamal Murray out for most of the year, having Sharich out for maybe the whole year is going to be that. But I don't know. I I don't think it's going to be the same. However, the other really fascinating wrinkle of that, and as much as we have lamented the early departures of stars in these playoffs, is that there are a whole bunch of teams that we expect to be really good next year that... Are gonna have a normal offseason in terms of amount of time they're off. Like the LA Lakers. They're gonna have, they're gonna have basically a normal offseason. They got eliminated from the playoffs on June 3rd. Okay. You know, June 3rd to early October, that's about the same as they would usually have if they were, you know, if they had made the finals. And they didn't have, you know what else they didn't have? Four rounds of playoffs. So yeah, it sucks the way the season ended, but you have them and the Nets. And I mean, if you think of the Warriors as that kind of team, which I don't next year, the Warriors and a lot of teams that we expect to be very good next year are there. However, there is one gigantic caveat. And, you know, we'll talk about some of the takeaways from the rest of the playoffs at other points. We still don't know what happened to Kawhi Leonard's knee. That's a scary idea. Like, it is astonishing that we just don't, there has been no public pronouncements. We're almost a month out from that injury, if memory serves. And we know know, there's been nothing public on what the hell happened. And yes, I can understand. I'm sympathetic to the idea that Kawhi Leonard, you know, there was swelling or something else that led to it. And particularly, even even though it's not something I do on a daily basis or, you know, I mean, Nate and I do overrunners and stuff, a sport that has professed to be very buddy-buddy, let's call it cozy with gambling, to have a star player who affects the futures odds and everything else that we don't know what the deal is, that's a little bit unsettling.
3: Well, especially with the player and team involved. I mean, yes. the Clippers, I would say, I mean, they've got to be right up there in terms of teams that obfuscate around injuries. There is a there is a thick veil of secrecy around everything that is going on there in terms of their players' health. And then you have Kawhi in the middle of that who's maybe the player who individually has the, the greatest veil around him and his health in and, and terms of secrecy. So there's all, there, you know, a, it's a multi-layered operation there to protect whatever it is that is going on. But it is concerning. And that, that, you know, as you mentioned, there are going to be teams that, by the nature of when they were eliminated from the playoffs and the road that they took that was, you know, longer and more arduous to get there, now we'll get a longer layoff like the Lakers will. But there's also the teams that their best players are about to go to Tokyo to play in the Olympics, including, you know, key players in this series right now that you have to worry about, too. And the thing to keep in mind about Tokyo, too, is especially with the state of where the virus is there right now, those players are basically walking into another bubble situation. Situation. They're walking into and all the mental, all the mental stress, all of the, you know, they're going overseas for international competition. They want to represent team USA. There's an element of that. That's really fun and enjoyable and playing with other stars, but you're also trying to keep as safe as possible. You're trying to keep the people who are with you safe. You're trying to deal with, you know, being contained in this way again, which I mean, nobody in the NBA liked being in the Orlando bubble. They were anxious as hell to get out by the end of it, especially the teams that went through all the way to the finals. So the idea of going into a, Another competitive environment like that. And if you're Devin Booker or Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton, you've got a lot of miles on you at this point. And even if you're one of the teams that was eliminated early, say the Mavericks and Luka Doncic. Now you're about to go right back into action. I mean, he, he really pretty much jumped on a plane to go play in qualifiers as soon as they were eliminated.
2: Or Kevin Durant. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't Like, after everything that he, that he went through over the last two years to just be like, yeah, I'm going to play in the Olympics. Now, for selfish reasons, as somebody who loves basketball and who loves international basketball as well, I'm thrilled that he's doing it. And as somebody who, you know, I'm still, I'm still biased to the country of my birth and I want Team USA to do well. I don't understand how in the hell this is happening. Like, it's incredible that, that he's going to play. And I, I'm really happy you brought up Luca too, because with Luca, it's also different because, I mean, we saw it in the Olympic qualifiers, the workload that he has to manage for Slovenia to be competitive. Yeah. It's, it's Mavericks-esque. And, and he has, you know, weaker relative surrounding talent on Slovenia, especially when we get into the Olympics than he, than he does on the Mavs and more power to him. You know, players get to their, their making their own decisions, but it, I, you're, you're right. And I, I, when I was making my statements, I was not thinking about Tokyo and it's not just, you know, people think of the 15 players on team USA. It's, the whole thing, you know, the the teams that went through qualifiers, the teams that went th- everything else. And so it is a lot of miles and players can make whatever decisions they want. I, re- I respect all that, but it is a piece of context that is going to be extremely important to remember. Well, and there are
3: clear benefits to going that go far beyond basketball and even sure. the next NBA season, right? Between the financial incentives of marketing yourself abroad, between, you know, someone asked in uh, the Team USA press conferences, asked Bradley Beal if he thinks there's going to be any tampering going on. Guys like trying to build the next super team and he was like, Yeah, I, I bet there will. And so if you're a Damian Lillard, for example, you have a lot of reason to go play for Team USA to get in guys' ear to try to figure out what whether it's bringing guys to Portland, whether it's trying to, you know, find your next situation, whatever it may be, that makes sense. If you're Draymond Green, I totally understand why you
2: would be there. <laughs> yeah, you don't you're... you don't have to do it from a parking lot if you're in the same <laughs> if you're in the same locker room. It's a little more
3: convenient when you're face to face. But yeah, if you're, if you're Kevin Durant though, and you've got your super team in hand already, and you just need to get healthy, and you were just playing 48 minutes of game, 48 minute games in the NBA playoffs. I'm with you. I'm like, I, I love to see him play in international basketball. I love to see him play that style and Team USA with him as its centerpiece. But that's that's a lot of load to put on your body at this time of year.
2: It is. Um. Still, you know, totally excited to see it, hoping for the best. One of the other kind of elements that happens a lot in the finals is the finals is really when those of us who have to track everything really catch our breath because there are days that there aren't actually games and one of the elements that i've been thinking about a fair amount over the last few days is due to the unusual circumstances of this year with so many key players missing time and the series that it shaped and we don't need to go through all those i think most people listen to this podcast will understand a lot of those without saying it that makes it harder to make broad scale takeaways. And there were a lot of them that we were hoping to make from this se- from offseason or postseason, including the Brooklyn Nets, like whether the theory of the case would work for them and some of the like various different team constructions and everything else. And I'm wondering if you, I have a couple, but I want to leave it to you first. If you have anything kind of big picture that you feel like you have more clarity on now than you did before the postseason began.
3: I think there's a couple things. I mean, for one, the Nets experiment from what we saw of it, I think, is destined to be a, a pretty huge success as to whether it's going to be a championship level success. There's just too many variables to know. But that is. I'm just in awe of what that team can be when it's fully healthy. And in particular, what Kyrie Irving was willing to do in terms of giving the ball up and still being a cutter, a defender, chasing offensive rebounds, like really filling a role for that team in a way that I wasn't expecting. So that was one big takeaway for me. Two, the power of a fully healthy Donovan Mitchell. I think he's kind of leveling up his game as a scorer and a creator, a guy who can read defenses at a really high level. I mean, one reason why amid there's been some talk about oh, what should the Jazz do? Do they need to change their personnel? Do they need to blow this thing up? I don't really see any urgent need to do that just because Mitchell is at that level where I think he can elevate you. Now, you can talk about their wing play and if they need to make some improvements there. I think that's totally reasonable grounds for conversation. But he's kind of put himself in a different category for me. And another thing would be the importance of... of the level of depth that the Hawks had in these playoffs, and I recognize that these playoffs are different than most in terms of the level of injury involved uh, across the NBA landscape, but even in just Atlanta's backyard in terms of you know losing a DeAndre Hunter, losing a Trey Young, and being able to plug in Lou Williams in that spot. Atlanta was a team where during the season I was wondering, does this team have like a too-many-guys problem, where there are too many good players here to give minutes to, to give developmental opportunities to? Do they need to consolidate – and that turned out to be one of their greatest assets of the playoffs. So if you're curious to dive into any of those, we can talk about them more in depth. But I'm curious to hear what what your takeaways were as well.
2: Yeah, I'll actually start with the Hawks. And so I, I echo your point about the importance of depth. And I think there are a couple of fascinating Potential, not, not, one of them is not a takeaway. One of them is, let's call it a genuine fear, which is the, the idea that one, something general managers will take away from this is that it's easier to get all the way than it actually is, where, you know, you think about the threshold of being a championship team and how good historically those, those groups are. And yes, they often are healthier than their opposition, but you also have to be pretty dang good in order to get there. And this year, whether it's the Hawks making the conference finals or the extremely injured Clippers making the conference finals, and I would argue this is probably going to be one of the weaker champions in recent vintage, probably the weakest, in depending on how we're defining terms. And that could lead to a lot of teams thinking, oh, well, we're close enough. We can do that. Like, Portland is probably a decent example of that, especially with the way that Neil O'Shea at least publicly thinks about his roster. And I think that we're, if that is to be the case, that could lead to some really painful Marches, Aprils, and May's next year, where teams think, "Oh, you know, we're we're in this mix, we could do it," and then they just get stomped because they aren't. You know, like we did what the Brooklyn Nets did to the Boston Celtics. Who, yes, we're missing Jalen Brown, but like that, I think we're going to see a few a few more of those next year unless the top teams get hurt like they did this year. And so I'm interested in how general managers kind of interpret that information and how that works for some of these kind of middle mid-tier starter free agents so norman powell is a great example it's like norman powell is an amazing success story i thought i i thought that he was you know a negative value on his contract and then now he is a no-brainer opt-out and likely to get significantly more than that at age 28, which is fantastic. I'm so thrilled for him. All that said, Norm Powell, you know, his role on a very good team is more modest, and not every team is going to win a championship, and that's fantastic. That's the way the league works. Everybody who who watches this long enough should understand that. But the Norm Powells, the Tim Hardaway Juniors, DeMar DeRozan, John Collins, all of whom are good players, all of whom can help make a team a lot better. I wonder if there are going to be teams that just say, all we need to do is get in the mix, and if we're in the mix, you never know what can happen. And that said, like, I'm a little bit worried about that in certain contexts. Like, there could be teams that, you know, kneecap their upside. Honestly, though, a lot of the teams that have space this year that have the real flexibility aren't really in that mold. Like, I'm not as concerned about the San Antonio Spurs doing that as I am the Dallas Mavericks doing it, because the Dallas Mavericks have a potential MVP right now who's in his early 20s and could end up being, you know, a generational force. Whereas the Spurs, as much as I like them and I think Popovich is a great coach and I I think that they have a bright future, I don't, you know, they're going to need theoretically like a Luka Doncic in order to get into that mix and it's really hard to get that guy.
3: I do think there's another way that could go, though, in terms of teams looking at this landscape and looking at this finals and thinking that it's more open than usual or more open than ever. And that's, you know, if teams aren't operating from a position that you described, where it's like, oh, we just need to make kind of one, one, one kind of minor move and we could be right in the mix. If they take that information and interpret it and react instead to say, oh, this is our time to really push in. I think we could be looking at a a pretty wide and pretty deep group of teams that are really going for it, that are really pushing to be as competitive as they possibly can on a short-term basis, maybe at the expense of their long-term flexibility financially or their cap sheet or however you want to look at that. But something that could be really good for the overall product in terms of just having the greatest number of really good teams on the floor especially at a time when, as we've been dancing around, so many guys are either already slated to miss significant time next season, or could be if the injury trends continue, just given the level of wear that these guys have on their bodies. The idea of more teams thinking they have a chance, to me, puts the league in a really interesting place. I mean, I think these these playoffs certainly unfolded in a way that was unexpected for a lot of people. I certainly didn't think that the Suns were going to be here in the NBA Finals, but I, see, I think this is where I might disagree with you, too, on the idea of the Suns as being, you know, one of the lesser champions in recent history. I think everything we talked about earlier in terms of how adaptive this Suns team is, how reactive they are, how difficult they are to pin down, I kind of think even if they had faced a quote-unquote normal Finals matchup or a quote unquote normal playoff bracket. Yeah, there are there are like there are eventualities and timelines in which they would have lost some of those series. But this is a tough team. This is a tough team for anybody to beat. Even a, you know a fully healthy Lakers team or a fully healthy you know plug in who, whoever your you know Nuggets or Nets or whoever you liked as as kind of a, a spoiler or a team that could potentially go all the way this season. I think they would have been tough for every for anybody. And so the idea that someone could have the Suns. And think, oh, we could do some version of that. Yeah, it might be deceptive, but it might also accidentally lead us into a pretty good NBA product for next season.
2: A, of, a lot of interesting stuff there, worth unpacking. On, on the Suns' point, I think there's there's some validity. That I think the, there's a difference between being a tough out and still being out. Like the you know the Warriors yeah. and the yeah. the best Cavs teams and a lot of the, they just they just would have been overwhelming. And I, I think we saw moments as great as he is in the in the Clipper series where Devin Booker, if he had the right kind of defender defender and scheme. You can make life hard on him. Now, sometimes he's going to make those shots as he did. Uh, he was so spectacular in game two. And I thought a lot of that, the Bucks actually defended Booker well. He just was was fantastic. On, on the other point, I think you could be right. And where the rubber is really going to meet the road, and this is part of why the 21 off season is going to be so fascinating, is the quality of the offers. Because a lot of these circumstances are going to be the same team making the decision to go one way or the other. Portland, again, fantastic example of this. Neil O'Shea has the ability, he has the, to trade Damian Lillard and maybe they get an absolute haul for him, but he also has the ability to retain guys to up, they don't have a ton of financial capacity to upgrade, but you know they could go in that direction too. And so what they do, what the Washington Wizards have Bradley Beal under contract. And again, some of that might be informed by what Beal tells them in terms of being willing to sign an extension. It is technically true that he can't ink that extension for later, but they can have an understanding or they can have an understanding that there isn't going to be a deal. And so you have some of these teams that are going to shape the market, and it will be shaped not only by the public puffing and pronouncements by those front offices, but also by what they're offered. Now, I don't think that the Wizards want to trade Bradley Beal. I think that they want to hold hands and go into the abyss together, at least for now. But- and this is what gets into the point that you're making, and that's why it, it, it got my brain working on this, is I do not think that the Washington Wizards, that Tommy Shepard and Ted Leonces, because remember, this is typically an ownership-level decision to trade a star. I do not think that it is, do not trade Bradley Beal under any circumstances, even if we get what will probably be the best offer we could get in the next five years. Like, if a team thinks that they're a Bradley Beal away, that Bradley Beal is their Chris Paul, or, hey, we're even better than the Suns were a year ago, And, you know, even though the bubble suns and everything else. And so we need our Chris Paul, Bradley Beal's the closest thing we can get to it. If those sorts of offers come to fruition for some of these players, whether it's Beal or Lillard or Ben Simmons in Philadelphia, who I think is on much shakier ground for a variety of different reasons, which is fascinating. Or I'm trying to think if there are any other really good examples of this. Um, I don't know, maybe David Griffin feels like New Orleans should shift things, not trading Zion, but like maybe with Brandon Ingram or something else like that. I think that a lot of these teams, the general positioning is going to be, we don't want to do those kind of moves, but I also don't think it's, we're not going to, like we can't, we won't like under no circumstances.
3: There's definitely different tiers of team in terms of recognizing those kinds of needs in terms of what they need to do in this moment, whether they need to- move on from their stars or not like Simmons and Beal are a great example like those are just two fundamentally different positions where if you're the Sixers I think you got a lot of pretty compelling if not overwhelming evidence that something needs to be done in terms of the construction of your team I think the Mavericks are probably closer to that camp than they are in the Beal camp not in terms of you know oh we need to trade Chris Epps for or something but like although I don't think they'd be opposed to doing that if the right deal came along it's more about like we need to make A substantive change it's like what we have isn't good enough it's it's very clearly not good enough with with one of the best players in the world playing like one of the best players in the world that's a scary thought that you're getting something that good from luca over the course of a playoff series and it's so clearly not good enough to compete with this other really good western conference team but the clippers were kind of on the other side of that too in terms of you know again for everything we don't know about Kawhi's health when that team is healthy, I feel like they're still in a really good spot. You know, there's some clear needs they might want to they might want to shift around. They'll need to figure out if there's a way for them to get Reggie Jackson back or not and if they can't, how to address that potential absence. But that's a team that can feel pretty good about where it's place in the Western Conference even with the Lakers coming back with presumably better health, even with, you know, the Nuggets rallying in whatever way they can in year 2 without Jamal Murray. You know, everyone is going to try to uh to settle their rosters and plug holes and, and fill gaps and address weaknesses as best they can. But there's so many of these teams in the West that I feel like can feel pretty comfortable about being in the thick of it, seeing how everything broke out and seeing just even, you know, with some of these teams in better shape, what their prospects might be. That's a pretty a pretty fun place to be. And what what the real wild card in all this is in terms of teams that can make big swings to try to put themselves over the top of that group is just how many picks are out there on the market right yeah. now. Like there's so many balls in the air. That are just waiting to fall, and we think of you know Oklahoma City, for example, as a team that oh they need to find something to do with these picks, they need to find a star to trade for or something like that. But there's just so many other potential end games there where they are the third team facilitating a trade for another team to get a star, and they get other valuable assets in return yeah. or young players or whatever it may be. So the fact that there's just so much up in the air, I mean, this is an incredibly uncertain time for the NBA in terms of where all these pieces are going to land, what like who, who the unexpected star is that we're not really thinking about right now that could be on the move, e- even as active as the trade industrial complex is in the NBA media, there's something out there cooking right now now that we don't know about that could shake the landscape of the entire league. That's a really exciting possibility.
2: It is. And what cracked me up, you were talking about, you know, the thing we haven't talked about that could really upset the apple cart. You brought up a great one in terms of the draft picks and everything else. I thought you were going to say the Toronto Raptors because (laughs) the Raptors... First of all, like they, Visayu Jiri is in a position where he can do whatever in the world he wants. And, and also that you, it is reasonable people can look at Toronto's situation and make a variety of different decisions for their ownership group. They could say, this is a team that won a championship recently. All these players are so important to the fabric of the franchise. Our fans still love them. We want to keep them around more power to you that I, I mean, I'm fine with that approach, it is also totally reasonable and plausible, especially considering they jumped up in the draft, to say we are in an extremely unusual situation where we have a lot of talented players, many of which are on positive value contracts that would really help out good teams. And maybe some of these teams are looking to, are are going to pay a premium. Even though the Raptors didn't have the greatest team success this year, I don't think that stink lingers on really any of them, other than maybe Siakam. But that's mostly because he just didn't play up to the standard we expected for him this year. So... If the front office says, yeah, there's a chance the player we drafted for, Jalen Suggs, Jalen Green, Mobley, Kamenga, whomever, that that player is, that that player is going to be good enough to be the player to slot everybody else down. It could also be that they say, that guy's going to be a stud, but it's going to take three years. And by that point, Fred Van Vliet, Siakam, you know, some of these guys are going to be a little bit, the, the timeline just isn't quite right. And they don't upset the apple cart in terms of the stars, as we were talking about, and you don't know the stars that are on the market, but it is completely reasonable to think that a theoretical Fred Van Vliet or OG Ananobi trade swings the championship in 2022.
3: I think there's a possibility we get to the conference finals next year, and three of those teams have been in some way elevated by the Toronto Raptors. You know, it's like- (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's uh, totally possible.
3: Like Kyle Lowry is on one of those teams, Van Vliet, Siakam, like- I would believe any permutation or possibility in terms of what they do going forward. And they're such a tough team to peg to because not only is Masai just an incredibly bold and unpredictable decision-maker in general, but that franchise, as you mentioned, in terms of its structure, in terms of its age, in terms of where their young prospects are relative to the guy that they're going to be bringing in with the draft, there's all of that. And then there's also this really awkward position where, as Adam Silver alluded to in his press conference, we don't even know if they're going to be back in Toronto next season, given right. where where the health situation is in terms of the virus in Canada right now. Is there, I don't know whether it changes their decision making one way or the other, the idea that if you're not playing in front of your fans, if you don't have the incentive to like service your fan base, or even, I mean, they do have some incentive to bring in ticket gate like like bringing money through the gate, I imagine I imagine they still you know recoup revenue the same way it 's just in a different place, but the, like it's just it 's just so different when it 's not your home arena, and when you 're basically leaning on a lot of visiting fans coming to every game if you 're going to be in Florida again it's such a weird position to be in as a franchise where so many things are coming untethered at once, and that can be really freeing if you want to explore some pretty crazy directions you could go. I, I, yeah, I really would not be surprised by anything as far as what next year's Raptors team looks like.
2: And you brought up the the. Location elements, which are extremely important, but also that that ties in with something else, which is how many of these parts are out of their control and the decisions will have to come quickly. And the other thing I'm thinking of there is Kyle Lowry. So yeah. running it back looks very different if Kyle Lowry is in a Miami Heat uniform and if he's in a Toronto Raptors uniform. Yes, maybe you end up with Jalen Suggs and you think that Suggs is you can slot him in and he's not going to be as good as Lowry this coming year, but he can get there soon. And maybe that's possible. I, I, I'm in the middle of watching his film. But generally speaking, rookies aren't very good. And maybe you're thinking you have a one or two year dip, but then you can get there. And crazily enough, the Raptors, like best guys are almost all under contract now for that long. So you can say we can do it, but maybe you believe, you know, to to tie this to the Spurs, I I think back to years ago where they're like, well, let's not pay Jonathan Simmons, let's just find the next Jonathan Simmons. And maybe they believe that with enough bites at the apple in terms of draft picks that they can maybe not put together a team that win, that, you know, had the success that this group did, but put together another, another viable group. And if you catch lightning in a bottle, awesome. And to, also,
3: their, to, to their point there, I had completely forgotten the name Jonathan Simmons until you just mentioned it.
2: That's my job. <laughs> um, but yeah, like so bringing this up, Siakam, he's under contract through 24. Van Vliet has a player option the year before that. And Anobi through 24 has a player option for 24-25. So – If they, like, that's part of what makes them jumping up in the lottery so fascinating, is that I was talking about it with, I think it was at the time with Vicini, Sam Vicini, and I was just like, I don't know if this makes it more or less likely that they, that they change course. I, I don't, like, it, it somehow makes both of them more likely, and that doesn't make any mathematical sense. And it's just because we don't know, and I love it when a front office that I respect a lot has a decision like this. Because I'm not as stressed out. Like, I mean, there was this stretch of time where I, where I'm just like, "Oh God, how are the Knicks going to screw this up? How are yeah. the, you know, like the the Clippers back when they were poorly run, or various other franchises?" And there are real consequences of that, especially in in places that you know fan base is ready to embrace a good team if when they have one. So like, there there are consequences for the league, and so I will have to kind of wait and see. But the I, I mean, we kind of in some ways started this podcast talking about variants more in terms of like the Bucks shooting and where the NBA finals can go. But for some of these franchises, the Blazers are another one. Um, you could argue the Philadelphia more just because of how it could affect the league and where Joel Embiid goes and everything else. Like these are huge swings. That could end up being there, and if you want to throw in a team like the Pelicans, where yeah, it's probably not going to change it as much for this year, but if but for the next half decade, what they do this off season, as much as what David Griffin's already done, will affect it. Like they're hiring a new coach, they're you know they're potentially changing around the roster, like for a a potential generational superstar that is blossoming as we you know as we've thought about the last year, and those sorts of decisions are gonna be crazy and then like that doesn't even include the draft because i don't know those guys well enough to know if they're gonna be the next zion luca lebron whatever like maybe hopefully they'd be great
3: when it doesn't include too the other young players already in the league who are going to take big steps that we aren't counting you know like what what if john morant just becomes a, a completely transformational talent what if what if zion has another level to ascend to like there's so many of these case studies that we just don't know and so many teams too that made you know substantive moves in the process of this season that haven't Quite settled yet. Like, what if the Bulls next season with Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic are just really good, or they make another move to even complement those guys even more? So there's, there. I mean, there's a lot going on right now uh, in ter- in terms of what the landscape of the 2021-22 season is going to look like. Well,
2: and uh, then, and we have,
3: we haven't even gotten to the draft or free agency.
2: No, and then the other looming thing, which I don't, it's it's on my my brain because that's the way this works is it's very unlikely to me that we're going to see the truly dramatic, like some of the stuff we've seen, like if you want to go to the extremes of LeBron in 2010 or KD in 2016, like it's just, it's not that kind of off season. The extension decisions from LeBron and AD and Paul George clarified a lot of that stuff and Kawhi could do things, but I don't think he will we could be roughly one year away from the next possibility of that happening because as of right now, the 2022 free agent class is absolutely loaded and there isn't as much tying some of those guys to where they are. Now, the restricted free agents, thats it's a loaded class with Trey and Luca and Shay, who I think all of those guys are going to sign extensions and there's some other, and Michael Porter Jr. and some of these other guys that are going to be really interesting. But the, the Nets trio, some of whom could sign extensions this offseason, Bradley Beal, potentially Levine, depending on what happens. Like, Steph – like, I don't – I and, and it's funny because whenever I mention something with Steph Curry because I'm closest geographically to the Warriors, people go, hm, perk up. I don't think there's a guarantee that he's necessarily – like, that, that he's going to be on the Warriors in 22-23. I expect it. But, like, we could be a year away from that next sea change.
3: The upheaval is coming One way or the other you Th- know, That's, that's all the of, rule
2: of the NBA You're right
3: Yeah I mean between All the trade possibilities You talked about The idea of kind of The hidden star Who's going to get moved to Who we're not even Thinking about right now And all of those Free agent possibilities And the way that teams Will navigate in advance Of those possibilities I mean they're, they're coming And so the question is not Which of these teams Is going to make Some kind of substantive move Or at least a, a tangible Shift in direction mm-hmm. Over the next Two or three Or six or eight months It's just a matter of when and who. And so that's like so much of what we talk about and so much of the reason why we are kind of going through hypotheticals on this stuff is trying to game out those possibilities, trying to figure out who those teams are and why they would do the things they would do, even without knowing all of the intricacies of every organization or what ownership think is thinking at exactly this moment. You know, you can report that st- stuff out and try to get to it as best you can, but some of it is just looking at the board and seeing who is in a position to do what and understanding why they might move the way they do. And right now, it's, it's an incredibly unpredictable place to try to make those guesses and game things out in that way, which, which makes it
2: exciting. And sometimes you look at the board and you say the Miami Heat, the Dallas Mavericks, a couple other teams kept all their caps face free at the beginning of the offseason. They must they're they they must know something about Giannis's Giannis's situation or Kawhi or something else. And then Giannis signs the designated veteran extension <laughs> right. and you're just like, okay, nobody knows anything. And reading the tea leaves is valuable. I think that it 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 really does help kind of see where things could be going. But part of what makes 21, and this is, again, one of the things because I'm often a year or two in advance, is I think there's a distinct chance that this offseason does not clarify much of anything for next year in terms of the stars. Now, some of them might sign extensions, but I don't know like what the Nets guys are going to do. Do they want to just see where things go? And even as we've learned over the last couple of years, signing extensions doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay the same forever. You know, so whether that, you know, it, it's, it locks you into that contract and it cedes a lot of control to the team, but doing that. And I mean, a great example of that, not that I want to get too far into the bull situation is Zach Levine. And so Levine, I don't think he's going to sign a pure extension right now, but theoretically the Bulls could open up a little cap space, they could do a renegotiation extension where then they pay him more money this coming season and then build off of that for a significant contract. There is also a possibility that Zach Levine believes in himself enough, he'll be 27 next offseason, says... I'd rather just see where these things go. And I think if he's willing to take the financial risk, I think that's a pretty smart approach considering none of us have an idea of how good the Bulls are going to be next year. And the most important part of that is, and I credit a lot of players for doing a really good job in recent years, and LeBron honestly deserves a lot of the credit for instilling this idea in this generation of players, is the worst thing a player can do is be Untrue to themselves about what they actually want. And there are lots of different ways to be happy and to be unhappy as a professional basketball player. But I think the easiest way to be unhappy is to do something that isn't really what you think you should do. And what, if you want to take the, the maelstrom that's coming as Kevin Durant to sign with the Warriors, win a couple of championships and then see where things go, so be it. And maybe, I don't, it'd be very interesting if you could give Kevin Durant truth serum and see how he thinks about that experience now versus some of the other options that were on the table. But, you know, like the Nets guys, including Duran, incidentally, like, they're in a pretty cool spot. I hope that they have a chance to see what it is, full strength. We'll see all that kind of stuff. And so, with. Steph Curry and Bradley Beal and Chris Paul who could potentially be negotiating a new contract as the Finals MVP which would be so incredible. What and of course he's also the president of the players association. Like what what all these players choose to do with the power that they have is going to be so important and the only wrong thing they can do is not be true to themselves.
3: And the Nets guys as you as you pinpointed really are at the center of that. Not just because, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden, those are incredible competitors, who who want to who want to play at the highest levels who want to compete for something who want a chance to win championships but there's also a, a reasonable uh, possibility here that they just kind of want to spend a couple of years hanging out with each other and with their other friends on the roster and having a good time and playing as well as they can as, as well as their health will allow. And then after two or three years, of that are just like, you know what, we're good. Let's kind of go do our own things. Like I'll I'll wish you well on your way. You can wish me uh, wish me well on mine. And everyone is cool with that. I wouldn't count anything out in terms of the way those guys choose to navigate those situations, especially because as you touched. on on like Kevin Durant and Kyrie in particular don't really seem like extension guys to me they seem like I'm going to keep my options open and see what's out there perpetually kind of guys Harden has been an extension player but he was also in a very different place in Houston in terms of everything being oriented strictly around him and the financial incentives of the way those extensions were structured kind of made sense for him at that time is he that guy still where he's just going to string along extensions going forward I I I find that kind of hard to believe given where he is
2: and also you have the complication that that all of those guys have made a ton of money and that doesn't prevent you from wanting to make a lot more, but how you, how you approach risk and how you approach, I mean, Blake Griffin's an amazing example of that. Who's on their team too, as of, as of this moment where he left a lot of money on the table. I don't think he regrets it. I think, you know, I'm sure he wishes they won a championship this year, but he, you know, he's made a lot in his career. The marginal effect of $1 on your quality of life changes a lot at that level. And if you want to go for it, do it. And with Brooklyn, it's a, it's a great way and we can kind of end on this of also thinking about how these decisions are simultaneously not made in a vacuum and not always made with fully public information. <laughs> yeah. So how Kevin Durant feels about an extension with the Nets. Will be affected by how James Harden and Kyrie feel about it, what they actually do, what all the other teams do, and so all of these decisions are flowing together. And that doesn't not everybody's working for perfect information. Sometimes you think your Giannis is going to be a free agent, and then he signs a new he signs an extension with the Bucks, and. All of those things can happen. And I, I think that the net situation is additionally fascinating because of the circumstances surrounding these players. So both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving have chosen through, through their own volition to leave a circumstance where they were in a, where they were on a good team where they had a real chance to win a championship. And yeah. now you can make a, cha- make an argument that they had a better chance of winning a championship together and everything else. And I mean, also I, I would say Ky- this is also Kyrie forcing his way off the Cavs. Like it's not even just leaving the Celtics. And I've long been of the belief that once a player does that once – that it makes them more likely to do it again, just because the not everybody is willing to do that. And that doesn't make them stronger people or weaker people or anything else. It just means they're the type of people that would leave a good situation, at sure. least good in terms of team quality. And I am I wonder how that works when you have those guys together, where maybe that's like, okay, they've it's sort of like what I, my theory of Kawhi and Paul George and the Clippers is they've chosen each other and so they'll keep choosing each other, like the organization and everything else. But I'm not confident in that not at all and i'm not also super confident that it's the same decision for all of them or that it's together like maybe the real core of the of the nets is KD and Kyrie and Harden is the, their best their best opportunity to win a championship right now, and that if it ever becomes that point, maybe it, maybe he says, like, I don't want to come back or something, and then they trade him again. Or maybe it's, maybe KD says, my goal is to win a championship. I like you a lot. Kyrie as a person. Harden is just better than you. And then Kyrie gets moved or you let him walk. Like, everything being a possibility for the Nets is almost too much to handle.
3: Well, it kind of echoes to the conversation we were having about Masai and the idea of who is put in a position- to make these huge league-altering choices, you know, you you touched on the fact that you know there are teams like the Knicks in the past that you almost rue the idea that they would have this many important decisions to make in, in a particular offseason, just because there's there's too many like vector points for potential failure and when you have guys like the Nets stars guys who regardless of what you think of where they ultimately went or whether they should have stayed or gone they make interesting choices yes. like they make they make choices that tell us something about who they are as people and what they want and what they value and they put themselves in different contexts that as a viewer of the nba is interesting like i love watching Kyrie Irving next to or sorry Kevin Durant next to Kyrie Irving after watching Kevin Durant next to Steph Curry i love that that experiment and James Harden same deal I've seen him in a completely new context after seeing him in Houston for so long with specific kinds of players in a particular kind of role that's what makes the NBA fun and so the idea that, you know, especially for those of us with no vested interest ultimately in where these guys go, it's exciting to see so many of the league's most interesting decision makers on the player side. Those are the guys who are gonna be deciding the next two or three years of the league. That's that's a great place for the league to be in terms of just overall interest in the game and in terms of what these teams are gonna look like. I mean, even after a year in, we still have a lot of questions about what the nets are and what kind of team they can be and what they're you know, they haven't even reached their ceiling yet in terms of what the chemistry of of that team could ultimately be how exciting is that
2: exactly and that is my one my one true hope for the Nets is that we get to see this experiment get a real test. At some point, ideally next year. I wish it was going to be this year. Didn't happen. That sucks. But the idea that you could have an offense so unstoppable and then cobble it enough together on defense that it that you can just not only win a championship but run roughshod, which I think is a distinct possibility for next year. Yeah, is so fascinating, and it it, it makes you think about you know like the idea of like kind of we might be living we might be living in a new. A new paradigm, but just not know it because of injuries. And that also, we talked about all the interesting decisions that all these teams have to make. In some ways, they're making it in a context that we might not fully understand right now. And that's always the case. And that's part of why being a general manager and being a coach and being a player is so hard. But- the, uh, that, that in some ways, that's like a distinct possibility that some of these teams probably aren't going to consider, which is, oh yeah, we're so close. And it's like the Nets just come through and, and just not maybe they don't win like 63 games or something like that, but they just come in the playoffs and they only lose like three games. Like it's a possibility. Or maybe it's the Nets and the Clippers or maybe it's something else. Who the hell knows? It's going to be awesome.
3: I love that idea though, that the the world has already changed and we're just kind of slowly waking up to it. And we'll see how many teams are slowly waking up to it too. You know, if you're, if you're a team, in Milwaukee's position, this could be your chance. Like before what, you know, if the, the Nets dynasty begins or before, you know, what other, you know, other Eastern Conference power you like or prefer, if you think the Sixers can do something interesting with or without Simmons, maybe this is their one shot before things really get shaken up. And all, all the more important in terms of the way they navigate these micro level decisions in game three in terms of what is ultimately going to happen to the state of the league in a couple months or a couple years. It's, it's dizzying the way all this stuff kind of flows together and especially for teams like the Suns and the Bucks like this is the iron is extremely hot right now in a very volatile league this is this is the opportunity you've got.
2: I'm frustrated at how well you tied that back. That was that was awesome.
3: Thanks.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking time. It's been an absolute joy.
3: Always a pleasure, Danny. Thanks.
2: Thanks again to Rob Mahoney for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Ringer. You can also hear him frequently on The Ringer NBA show, and you can follow him on Twitter if you don't already at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Love having him on, love getting his perspective, especially at this interesting moment in the NBA calendar. And- If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a whole bunch of ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is a great thing to do because this show will never come out at a specific time due to my availability, guest availability, everything fun like that. So instead, you could just get it when it pops in. This is a great example considering it's recorded on Saturday morning Pacific time, and a lot of episodes will be like that. You can also help other people find the show, and that's by leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast wherever you're choosing, Apple, Spotify, wherever. Or just telling people. Word of mouth can be very important. You like a specific episode. You think the show in general is good. That can really help other people find it. You can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are doing Dunked On Prime and the public episodes, which come out Sunday evening or Monday morning, depending on where you live. And then we also do Dunked On Prime, which is the rest of the days of the week. And so we're doing a lot of game, the game recaps, off-season reviews. And uh, for the public episode this week for Dunked On, we're going to talk, of course, about game three of the finals. But also we're going to preview, we're going to analyze... Jalen Suggs, draft prospect. I, I'm just finishing up my film work on him, so that's always exciting. Also, Nate and I are, are doing just about every finals game on HotMic, which is a really cool app that allows you to sync your i get our audio and watch the game yourself. Don't have to do the clock stuff and everything that we used to have to do. So you can check out Hot Mic as well. I feel like I've been taking this a lot in recent weeks, but actually you can see some of my work. I, I did a collaborative piece with John Krasinski on the Timberwolves. He was asking me about how they could acquire Ben Simmons. So I helped him out with a piece there. So you can get a little bit of my writing in there. And then I'm working on a couple other collaborative pieces that should be coming out in the near term. I have two that are deep in process now. So if, um, you can check that out and I'll have more at The Athletic soonish. And that's all for now. You know, there's always a lot, a lot in the, in the offing this time of year and kind of thinking about the off season while also enjoying these NBA finals. So if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I like to respond, but I'm not great at it. I admit that. Um, because, but I read everything every day. That's, that's just, that's just what I do. Um, they come into a specific place. I go through everything and then I file it away that I'm going to need to respond and then I sometimes forget. But anyway, anyway, that's enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.